0: one today. And as I'm sure I will repeat multiple times, as we read this text, just to remind ourselves of the the culmination of all of history happening here, five days away from our Savior's death and resurrection. Now, eight days away from the resurrection. So... ...if this helps to give a time frame of Jesus Christ's ministry... ...we've been in the book of Matthew for about three years or so. And now we're coming up to about the three and a half year mark of our Savior's ministry. So this time is being collapsed to a very short period. The next eight chapters are going to be dealing with five days. Five days that are filled with significance. And I hope that we would see today filled with fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy... Please stand with me one more time as we read. Verses 1-11 through today of Matthew 21, he has been preaching that he's coming to Jerusalem to die, and now here he comes to Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied. With a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their coats, and He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut off branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before Him and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna, save us to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when He entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Please be seated as we pray. Father, we come before you today, and uh, God, we have a marvelous text that is full of meaning that I doubtless will not drain of all of its implications, or preach as well as it ought to be preached. But God, we trust You today that You will use Your Holy Word to elevate Jesus Christ in our hearts that we might love You more, God. This is what You do, and You alone. Help me today to have no confidence in myself, but only confidence in the God who takes meager loaves and fish and multiplies them for the feeding of Your people. Feed us today with Your Word Help me, Lord, to lift up Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. As we're thinking about this text, as strange as it might sound, it caused me to think yesterday about reading or watching maybe a, a good whodunit murder mystery or something like that. And The reason it caused me to think of that is because one of the great things in a whodunit kind of detective novel is that as you're reading through or watching, you notice certain patterns or repetitions or phrases that are mysterious to the viewer, to the audience, as we're hearing it, right? You might notice a a gun on the table earlier in the narrative, which comes to light later. You might notice a person saying something that might not seem to make sense through the rest of the movie, but then there comes that one moment where everything's tied together, everything makes sense, and all of those other events that seemed weird, inconsequential, they're imbued with actual true meaning. You see what the author was trying to do the whole time, and you see the beauty of the book as a whole. This text, this chapter, these next two chapters in Matthew remind me of that. We must realize that this book, although it was written by several human authors through thousands of years, it's written by one primary author, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit governed not just how this book was written down, but the history that it recorded was governed by the Holy Spirit throughout all time that when Jesus Christ came, who is the pinnacle of all history, the one that ties everything together, that teaches us about God and man to the fullest degree, much of the Old Testament, even those strange parts, can make sense to us. And so we see here, Jesus, again, five days before His crucifixion, He shows Himself to be the Messianic King. And the people respond, either in faith or unbelief. And those are the two sections that I want us to see today. This text is designed for us to recognize who Jesus Christ is specifically as the fulfillment of Old Testament types, shadows, patterns and prophecies. But secondly, it's designed that we would all respond to him in faith. In fact, the command that we have in Zechariah 9 9 is that we would rejoice because this king is coming. So, church, first, we must recognize how Jesus reveals himself. How Jesus reveals himself. Jesus is consumed with revealing who He is in the last five days of His earthly life before the resurrection. And just to give you an overview of where we're going to be going for the next several months to the end of the book, this whole book, the next two, is divided into two sections. Chapters 26 through 28 are going to detail to us the rejection of Jesus Christ, His death, and His resurrection. While verses 21 through 25 are characterized by what I call here division from revelation. What I mean by that is that Jesus Christ in these five days is revealing himself to be the Messiah. And that is causing further and further division between those who believe in Christ and those who do not. There's a division from what Jesus does here. And in, verse, in chapters 24 through 25, Jesus is talking only to his disciples, preparing them for the division that they're going to experience in the world after he dies. But in our text, the section that we enter in today, chapters 21 through 23, Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah to Jerusalem, to the leaders of Jerusalem, and he does that through conflict, through conflict conflict. The Pharisees in particular and the scribes secondarily are these two great enemies of Jesus Christ and over and over again we see Jesus revealing himself through conflict with these men. And Matthew and the Holy Spirit he reveals this in triplets. What do I mean by that? Well if you look down with me to chapter 21 we see Jesus reveals himself to Jerusalem and to the Pharisees through three symbolic actions. We see him revealing himself through the first symbolic action, choosing to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. The second symbolic action is Jesus entering the temple and cleansing it from those who bought and sold in the temple. And the third symbolic action is Jesus Christ cursing the fig tree, saying it will no longer bear Fruit. But there's a second triplet. In verses twenty-eight of chapter twenty-one through twenty-two, fourteen, Jesus reveals himself in conflict through three parables to the Pharisees. And then in chapter twenty two, fifteen through forty six, Jesus reveals himself through three theological conundrums. That is, his enemies come to him, they try to trip him up and to ensnare him in what he is saying. And Jesus Christ reveals himself to be the wisdom of God, the one truly sent, the one who understands and teaches the scripture by coming through these theological difficulties on top. Where at the end of chapter 22, no longer will anybody ask him any more questions. And all of this culminates in chapter 23 where these men, although they've seen Jesus reveal Himself through symbolic action, through parable, and through theological testing, at the end of it, they still reject Him. And in chapter 23, Jesus stands up and pronounces woe or curses to those who have rejected Him. This whole section ends with Jesus Christ saying, to Jerusalem, the city that He's going to in this text... O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. This section is all about Jesus Christ revealing Himself so that, his elect would come to him. And to make it absolutely crystal clear for those who reject him, they're rejecting God's Messiah. And because this is his goal, all of these chapters are just, the best word I can think of is pregnant with Old Testament meaning. Full of it, drenching, soaked with the Scriptures. Now, just for an example on this, In chapters 21 and 22, where Jesus is engaged in this controversy, we have no less than 12 explicit references to the Old Testament, quotations from the Old Testament in two chapters. That's maybe the the greatest amount of quotations that we have in the book of Matthew, which is full of them. And in our chapter that we're starting today, we have seven references to the Old Testament. But... I would say to you today that there are dozens and dozens of illusions and patterns that Jesus is fulfilling. What we are to see here today is that Jesus wants to prove to these people that he is the Messiah. And every decision that he makes, he is not wasting time. He is choosing to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Our text today, Jesus approaches Jerusalem. And he intentionally reveals his identity in his actions. That's his goal. That's what he desires to do. And the method that he wants to reveal himself is that he has his disciples go to a town and get a donkey, actually two donkeys, right? A mother and the colt. Matthew's the only one that records there's two here and brings them to Christ. Both of them are saddled. And Jesus Christ rides in to Jerusalem ...on a donkey while the people praise him. He leaves the donkey... ...outside the gates of Jerusalem... ...and enters in. Now... ...we should rightly ask... ...what is Jesus revealing... ...through this symbolic action... ...of riding a donkey from the Mount of Olives... ...to the gates of Jerusalem? Now... ...there are many things that Jesus reveals here. And the first thing I want us to consider today... Is that Jesus reveals his redemptive identity through patterns. What do I mean by that? I mean that when we think of Christ fulfilling prophecy, or even the church, or anything, any way that prophecy is fulfilled, it's fulfilled in a variety of different ways. It's fulfilled, obviously, by a direct prophecy, like in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, literally coming to pass. But the Bible is written in such a way majestic in its way that it's written is that we should see patterns being fulfilled, types and shadows coming to pass. If we go back to the illustration of the who done it novel, right? When we're reading through one of those things, we feel free to interpret that movie or that book, right? ...by the patterns that were revealed earlier. That they had real meaning... ...according to the end of the book, right? We should feel free... ...to interpret the scripture in the same way... ...because the Holy Spirit... ...the one author of scripture... ...means to put these patterns in our way. And so if we're nervous about that today... ...I I want us to question... ...if that's a proper thing to be nervous about... ...because I think... ...that it is nearly impossible to read this account... And then think about the Old Testament and not see Jesus fulfilling these patterns. A donkey being ridden into Jerusalem comes up in several texts that are clearly messianic in their pattern. The first one, and there's multiple you can go to. The clearest two that I have is the first in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 3. In Genesis 22 and verse 3, We have in this wonderful text, as my brother Joey was counseling me and comforting me this week, many things that we rightly view as a pattern fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We see Abraham's son, his only son that he loved, going to Mount Moriah. Now We might ask, what is Mount Moriah? Well, we're told very clearly in 2 Chronicles, I believe chapter 3... The Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. Abraham leads his son to the place where the temple would be built. His only son whom he loved and lays the wood upon his back and has his son march up the hill to be sacrificed. We rightly see the patterns there. Even though the New Testament nowhere explicitly says this is a type of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're to accept that, I want us to notice the small detail here that in verse 3 of chapter 22, we see Abraham. And he says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now I would just ask you, brothers and sisters, if you had these two readings in your daily Bible plan, where you read of Genesis 22 and Abraham going to Jerusalem with his son that would be sacrificed and left the donkey at the base of the mountain and traveled up for the sacrifice... And then we read of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, getting on a donkey, going to Jerusalem and leaving it to go to the place where he was going to be sacrificed and died. That is a reasonable thing for us to see, a pattern fulfilled. And we often have in our minds, well, how are we to interpret that exactly and precisely? And I can't tell you the re- how we would do that. But maybe the goal is not for us to precisely write down exactly how, what this means, but just to marvel in the fact that God had put these patterns here for us to rejoice that Jesus fulfills it in some way. second pattern that we see is the pattern, not of sacrifice, but the pattern of a peaceful king. This is what Joey read for us in 2 Samuel 15. I'll have you turn there with me just for us to see it with new eyes. New eyes. Perhaps we we read through it or we're taking care of children or something when we read the first time. We see David in this section being chased out of Jerusalem by Absalom. And the overall characteristic that we see of David here is a king being persecuted by his son, but a, a king that's Peaceful. He does not raise up arms and kill his son immediately. He goes into exile outside of Jerusalem. And what I think is striking, and again, if we had these two readings side by side in our devotions, wouldn't it be difficult not to notice that David is on the Mount of Olives, weeping as he goes up. And two donkeys are brought to him. Or it says a couple of donkeys are brought to him saddled, and David rides on them. Now, David is doing something different than what Jesus is doing in our text. He is not going to Jerusalem. Rather, he is traveling away from Jerusalem when he receives these donkeys for him to ride on. But the illusion is so strong that some commentators have said that Zechariah 9 is telling us that the exiled King David is returning on the same path in which he left Jerusalem and coming back the greater David is coming and is here. Just as David fled in peace and was given donkeys at the mount, so Jesus will return to where He will be rejected. And we could go on to a few different things, but I want us to just see that the choices that Jesus makes on these last five days of His life are meant to fulfill the, New, the Old Testament in a variety of different ways. Jesus fulfills certain redemptive patterns. Christ, the final sacrifice provided for sinners, is patterned after us here. And we're to be reminded of it. He is the fulfillment. The greater thing that Abraham was pointing to. David comes back to Jerusalem In peace, and Jesus Christ here is coming to announce a gospel of peace to sinners. But Jesus not only shows his mission to die and reign, he not only shows his identity in the fulfillment of these patterns, but additionally, Jesus reveals his redemptive character. Now, go back with me to Matthew chapter 21, and this is where we consider Zechariah. 9, 9. Jesus certainly is saying that he is the king that is coming and the king that will be sacrificed. But Matthew is the only one that records for us. This is a direct fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. I'm going to read those two. I know I just had you turn, so you can just listen if you'd like. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, we have the wonderful words of the prophet. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. We have here, the meekness of Christ revealed first and foremost. Behold, your king is coming to you. And then Zechariah goes on to describe what that king is like. He's humble. He's humble. And that word we shouldn't take to mean that Jesus Christ deserves a certain position and he's putting himself below the position that he should be in. But rather, Jesus Christ is meek. That's what this Greek word means. Really should be translated as I believe he is meek. Now, if we were to consider the people of Jerusalem and the sinners that were there, it might not be good news to us just to hear that our king is coming, that God's chosen messianic king is here and he's coming into Jerusalem. We might rightly be terrified by that idea. For what if he comes in judgment? What if he comes to exact vengeance upon sinners who have done wrong to him? But our king and Jesus does not enter into Jerusalem. He chooses not to come in pomp, not to come in glory, not to come on a war horse, but rather he comes humble and meek. And so we have to ask the question, what is meant by this word that we have? That he is humble or meek. Well, throughout the, Old, throughout the New Testament, we get a very good idea. It is the opposite of being harsh. It's the opposite of one standing upon their rights. To put that in another way, a, a meek person is never the person that says, I don't deserve this. This isn't right, and I'm going to stand up for what I, what is coming to me. And I want us to notice a couple of New Testament passages that show us that meekness is contrasted with the idea of righteousness and standing upon our rights. In 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul says this, Shall I come to you with a rod or with the spirit of gentleness? The same word being used here for meekness. Notice, Paul says there's two ways that I can come to you. One is to exact what you owe me exact justice, or with the spirit of gentleness. Galatians 5.22, notice how this same word translated as gentleness is put in the context of a bunch of similar words of gentleness and a lack of harshness. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, gentleness. Our king comes to us in this text. And what Zechariah tells us is that this king is humble. He is lowly, in heart, and gentle. But also, we see something else about his redemptive character. Not only is he humble and meek, not giving what is due, but inviting people to come to him. He is a peacemaking savior. Now, that brings us to the point that Jesus Christ chooses to ride on a donkey to come into Jerusalem. I think my previous notions of this was a donkey was ridden by by poor folks perhaps and a horse was ridden by those who are more wealthy. But on a very base level perusal of our Bibles, we see this isn't the case. We see David here, a extremely rich man who donated in today's money billions of dollars to the temple. Riding on a donkey. We see his son Solomon riding on a mule for his coronation. Not exactly the same thing as a donkey for his coronation. We see the sons of Gideon, 70 sons, riding on 70 donkeys. So this isn't meant to show us that Jesus Christ was poor because he's riding on a donkey. Now, it could show us that he's poor because he had to borrow one. Right? That Jesus was so low in this earth and had so little that he had to ask his disciples to go and and have somebody donate this donkey for a time to him. But this donkey represents a king riding in peace. And as I was talking to Brother Caleb today, how how silly would it be to have a war going on and have the king riding out into war on a donkey? wouldn't be a fitting image, would it? A donkey is a fitting... fitting, form of transportation for a king but only in time of peace only in time of peace and Jesus Christ here chooses a donkey instead of a horse and he is relating to the people that he is coming in peace to Jerusalem he's coming in peace now we might ask how is he coming in peace well we know that Jesus Christ is our peace don't we we see that the whole of his mission was wrapped up in making peace between God and man. And I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 to see the strong language of this. Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 14 through 17. And I love this language. Notice verse 14. For he himself... Is our peace. He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. How does Jesus Christ make peace? He makes peace between man and man. Jew and Gentile, who were divided as far apart as the East is from the West, separated from one another, especially by the ceremonial laws that were given in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ comes and fulfills all and brings them together. He creates one new man of the two, thus making peace. But the thing that we celebrate the most is not that Jesus comes to make peace between man and man, as wonderful as that is, we celebrate that He came to make peace between us and God. Notice in Ephesians 2, He continues, "...and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to them." Who were near. Christ makes peace. His mission was to give peace, and riding on this donkey, he is symbol, symbolically telling the people he is coming not to make war, but to make peace. And some, we should recognize that Jesus reveals himself to be the fulfillment of type shadows, patterns, and direct prophecy. Of the Old Testament. And it reveals to us that He is the perfect Savior of sinners. He shows Himself to be the one who will make sacrifice and be sacrificed. The King who is meek and who will bring everlasting peace to those who believe in Him. And so the question is, if Jesus means to reveal all of this to us by this simple act of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, how should we respond to that? Well, the answer that we have is that we must respond with joy. Did you notice that in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9? It starts out with rejoice, daughter of Zion. Rejoice, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, your king is coming to you. And we see in this section the division that Christ causes among those who see this. In verses 8-11, through 11, we see that the crowds rejoice at our Savior. Notice that with me. Most of the crowd, when they riding to Jerusalem on the donkey, they respond by taking off their coats and going and cutting off branches and putting them in the way. This is to show reverence and honor to Him. Much like we read um, of Jehu being anointed king, and the commanders were sitting around him. And when Jehu says that he was anointed king, they take off their cloaks and put them under him. It's a shine of reverence and of authority. They see Jesus as the coming king. They see him as the coming king. Now, the better question that we have here is why they rejoiced. Because I do not believe that these people on the way. Recognized any of these patterns, nor even thought of Zechariah. And the reason I don't think that is because of what we have in John chapter 12, a parallel text to this. Please turn there with me. John 12. Even the disciples did not understand what Jesus was doing or symbolizing when he rode into Jerusalem. John chapter 12. Notice verse 16. Right after, we have the quotation of Zechariah 9.9 9 again. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Now notice verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard He had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The crowd responds to something that's not recorded in Matthew. That when he was on the Mount of Olives in Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead before he marched into Jerusalem. And this is why John records for us that they came out to worship and to praise God because of him. But what we have in our text is how they rejoiced. That is most clear. How they rejoiced. They spread out their garments. They cut branches and put them in their way. But the most notable fact is that they quote Psalm 118. They quote Psalm 118 that is a clear messianic text of the stone that the builders rejected will become the chief cornerstone. And we see in verse 9, them saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, save us in the Hebrew, from what I understand, became over history just a term that we would say hallelujah or perhaps in Britain or something, God saves the king. It was an exclamation of praise to God here. And that's what we see them doing. They're praising God. And this is an absolutely... Necessary response. If we're considering how we ought to respond to Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, Luke tells us that this is such a necessary response that even inanimate creation should respond this way if human voices were to remain silent. Luke chapter 19, turn with me if you're able there. This will be the last place I have you turn. Luke chapter 19. Verses 39 through 40. Right after this happens, Luke adds some very important details. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is such a necessary response to us, by us that even the stones would cry out if these people were to keep silent. And yet, we see Jerusalem, the city that God chose to put His name there and have His temple there and be worshipped there, reject their Messiah. As we see in verses 10-11, through Jesus Christ comes here, the people are rejoicing, but how does Jerusalem respond? Who is this? Now, depending on the inflection on which you read that, can change how you, how you see this text, right? I think when I initially read it, I said, who is this? Like they don't know who he is. But Jesus has gained national popularity and fame by what he's done to this point. Even to the point where at different points in Matthew 15, the Pharisees send people from Jerusalem to see what Jesus Christ is up to. To question him. And in John's Gospel, we see that he has made various trips to Jerusalem and back... ...and gotten the attention of the people there. I think a better way to read this is, who is this? Who is this? He thinks that he's somebody riding here. The people are praising him. Who does he think that he is? Who is this? And we know that Jerusalem rejects him. And if you're still in Luke chapter 19... I want you to see this isn't a presumptive reading. This is how Luke interprets. Because Jesus, when he gets to the city, verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to visit them with a message of peace. And Jesus says here in this text, woe to you because you didn't know the day of your visitation. You didn't know the things that made for peace. Jerusalem rejects of the gospel. They are content in themselves. The Pharisees and scribes are content with their own righteousness. They don't need a Savior who is a sacrifice and a humble king. They just need somebody to take care of the Romans for them. They're ethically good enough by themselves. They did not recognize Jesus because they saw no need to recognize Jesus, They didn't need peace with God. And I want to tell you, church, this serves as a great warning to everybody that hears the gospel here today. Because the time of peace is now. When we think about this and how we ought to respond to Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we should not think, how should I respond to this event that happened 2,000 years ago? Because Jesus Christ comes with the same message of peace. With the same meekness. The same humility to the church today. Everybody that can hear the gospel voice, the gospel call, Jesus Christ comes in the same manner and in the same way and calls us to believe on Him. To rejoice that our King has come. That even this kind of King had come. Because when He comes again, He is not coming on a donkey. He's coming on a white horse to judge and make war. This is the day of salvation. This is the time to believe in Him. Because there is no neutrality when we are confronted by Jesus Christ. When Jesus chose to ride on this donkey and come to Jerusalem, he left no middle ground for you to say, Well, I'll rejoice. Maybe I'll do it later. I'm not really sure. We must respond to him. We cannot be neutral. We are told that the only proper response is to rejoice. Rejoice, O daughter of Zion. But not everybody responds the same, as we see. Some reject. And some rejoice with Him. This same Jesus comes to us every Lord's Day and again comes today to reveal Himself to you. Oh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This wonderful text. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. And through Him, or through us rather, Spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. You know, when the gospel is preached in your homes and your family at church, the the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ is, is spreading. And that fragrance, when it hits our spiritual olfactory senses, calls for an absolute, definite response because it's a fragrance of death to those who refuse Him. It smells rotten. Distasteful, as Joey taught on the will this morning, Our desires are bent to the fact it doesn't smell good. It smells like green beans to me, and that's not a good thing. OK. Because Paul continues, "For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one of fragrance, from death to death. That is, Christ smells like death and it leads to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things. And two, two illustrations come to mind. The smell, organ, and sense is very strong in us to cause repulsion, isn't it? I recall, and we still don't know what it is. It's probably a bad thing to confess up here, but... Up by one of my daughter's rooms, Janie's room, every once in a while we get an odor and then we're convinced that there's an animal dead in the wall somewhere, right? And this causes a strong response, doesn't it? It's a a smell of death, isn't it? And we want to do something about it. It causes a strong response. We want to get rid of the smell no matter what it is. What it costs. Now, the smell goes away in our house, but if it would continue, I mean, we might have to tear down some of the wall, do some drywall work or something to get that animal out. Christ only smells of death to the unbeliever, he smells of a death to himself. He's going to have to stop doing the things that he loves, and his desires are going to change, and he's going to have to worship the one. When, in fact, he just wants to worship himself. It smells of death to the unbeliever to believe in Jesus Christ. He has to die to everything that he loves. And therefore, they reject him. It calls for a strong response. But he is a fragrance, fragrance of life to sinners. Another analogy that may be helpful, it's helpful to me, is I remember for a time uh, being laid off from my construction job. I went out to do some asphalt work. And they heated the square of ground up to fifteen hundred degrees Fahrenheit and got the, the asphalt bubbling basically and we sprayed some oil to rejuvenate it and we spread fresh asphalt. And if you've been around asphalt, it it stinks, right? It's got a very chemically smell to it, and it just clings to your clothes. And I remember getting home and I could say figuratively, I mean, I smell like death. I need to get in the shower and and get some a fragrance of humanity or life back on me. It calls for a strong response that I need to be cleaned. Those who are regenerate, they don't smell Jesus Christ as if he's a fragrance of death. They smell themselves as if they're a fragrance of death. And they have to go to Jesus Christ for life. We have to be cleansed and washed from our own death, from our own putrid smell from our rottenness that is clinging to our flesh. Those who are regenerated only smell death on ourselves and we need the cleansing life of Jesus Christ and we know through the preaching of the Gospel that only Jesus can cleanse us. My own good works can't cleanse me. My own scrubbing and reforming my life can't make me whole. I need Christ to give me life and envelop me with the smell of life. There is no neutrality when we're confronted by Jesus Christ. And children, children, listen, look at me today. You are here and you think that you have your whole life in front of you and you do and you have many days to live. But Jesus Christ comes today and He calls for a response even from your little hearts today. To believe in Him and to trust Him. To know that you have death only in yourself. There is no righteousness in you, but Jesus gives it freely to all. And we see this picture of Him coming to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, humble and meek and peaceful. And He says, Come to Me. Come to Me. Therefore, sinner, rejoice. Rejoice. And you're king. He is a savior that is absolutely fitting for sinners like us. There is no sinner that is so sinful that Jesus Christ is an unfitting savior. A warrior king coming on a horse would surely come to kill me and slay sinners like us. A king who is harsh and unbending, the opposite of meek, would find us absolutely guilty before him. But Jesus is not like this. He comes to us meek, humble, on a donkey. And therefore, we ought to cast off all doubt today. His meekness is meant to do something. He is called humble in Zechariah, not just so that we would have a character sketch of him, but that we would respond to him appropriately. If I have a boss, and maybe some of you have had a boss, that is just always picking at you. Telling you what you're doing wrong is harsh and unbending. We don't want to go to that person about anything. We'll walk on eggshells around people like that. But Jesus is the opposite. He's humble so that you'll come to Him. Because He will accept everybody that comes to Him. His peaceful entrance gives us confidence that He came for this purpose to make peace No longer does the Bible give you the opportunity or the reason to doubt Him. He's made peace. And if you believe on Him, He has made perfect peace with God for you. And it's only when we can see how He revealed Himself can we say and must we say with these people, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest Jesus Christ reveals himself in church. We're called to have these images. I'm more and more I go through Matthew, I'm convinced to have these images burned into our minds, these narratives burned into our minds because Christ is the same in heaven as He was on this day He entered in Jerusalem. He is the same to sinners, and we can go to Him in confidence. Right, let us pray, Lord. We come before you in the name of your son, and we thank you that Jesus Christ is everything to us. He himself is our peace. And God, I can add nothing to him. I can take away nothing from him. God, I I, and we only accept with the open mouth of faith, the open hand of faith, to receive what Jesus Christ has done for us. Please, God, bless us today and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.